Welcome to the Insights Podcast for April the 29th. I'm Don Mills and I'm with David Campbell. And today we're tackling the issue of immigrant uh, retention, uh, which is uh, equally important if we want to grow our population. The experience uh, to date in the region has been a bit mixed. Uh, We are getting better at it, but uh, there's a lot more that we need to do to keep people uh, in our provinces uh, that land here from other countries. And we want to start a little bit with some numbers. And David, you've got a, you've got some numbers basically on, in terms of retention um, and maybe what the goal should be uh, looking at the Atlantic provinces. Yeah, that's right. So Stats Canada publishes annually numbers on retention. The problem is that there's about a two-year lag because it's based on tax filing data. Now, increasingly, they're looking at using Medicare cards and other ways to track even more um, more currently. But if you look at those that landed in the 2016 year and filed taxes in 2018, uh, the overall retention rate among all categories in Nova Scotia was uh, 68.9%, so almost 70% of everybody that landed in 2016 was still filing taxes in Nova Scotia in 2018. New Brunswick was a little lower at 63. Prince Edward Island was quite low at 47. But as we've talked about in previous uh, podcasts, because the top line number was so high, the actual number that retained is actually higher in PEI than it is in New Brunswick. And Newfoundland and Labrador, 53.4%. So that compares, if you look at Saskatchewan, 69, that's very similar to Nova Scotia. If you look at Manitoba, 74, it's a little higher, but not dramatically higher. So really what we're looking at is the large provinces, British Columbia, Alberta, Quebec, uh, and Ontario have much higher retention rates in the mid-80s, 90. Uh, But the others, the smaller provinces, including Saskatchewan and Manitoba, have lower retention rates. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, which we can discuss. Uh, But at the end of the day, I think using, say, 2016 is a pretty good number. Although, as you and I have talked about, the Atlantic Pilot Project which hopefully will drive up retention, only got started around 2017 or even 2018. So we'll start to see, uh, and the early indications from the Atlantic Immigration Pilot is that there's been about a 90% retention rate, although the period of time is not as long as as we're looking at here. Yeah, and so if you you think about retention, it's really over the long term that we're concerned about uh, how many people stay here. Uh, I think the numbers that I've seen for the for the region for after five years is slightly over 50%. Obviously, that number's got to be higher. I don't know what the right number is, but it's certainly not 50%. It's got to be probably in the mid-60s or maybe even close to 70% after five years. Then we'll know that we're doing uh, a pretty good job in terms of retention. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things that I, uh, I've been referring to is our our diversity in our population currently relative to the rest of the country. And uh, the last census, which is almost five years old, and and, and it will change a little bit, I'm sure, showed that there were 22% of uh, Canadians that uh, were born in another country. So one out of five, it's a pretty big number when you think about it. Uh, But if you compare those numbers for the region, it it ranges from a low of only a little over 2% in Newfoundland, so it's the least diverse population in Canada, to a high of 6.4% for for Prince Edward Island. Um, Still very low, low numbers. And so one of the one of the challenges I think that 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 indicates uh, that we have to face is that we have, with some exceptions, very uh, low uh, experience 
in, in living with diversity. Now, there are, there are pockets where the diversity is higher. For instance, uh, Moncton and, uh, and Halifax and Charlottetown, I think, are three areas where there's a lot of diversity and people are starting to get the experience of living with uh, people from different parts of the world. And, uh, but if you go outside those communities especially, it's actually still a very small number. So it's, a, it's, it's brand new. And, of course, what happens when things are new? Uh, people are, you know, uh, a little reluctant uh, to reach out and uh, to help people integrate. And uh, I think that that's one of the challenges that, uh, that I see that we face in this region. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think ultimately there's onus on both parties. So the newcomer needs to work to integrate into social and uh, business and professional and recreational networks and even churches in the communities, as we've talked about earlier. Um, but we also, as longtime citizens of uh, and multi-generational in some cases, we need to be more opening uh, and more welcoming to newcomers into our community because it's, it's no longer just... Uh, theoretical, right? It's happening now and our ability to retain them will have a lot to do with the success of our communities, whether it's Halifax or whether it's uh, Minto, New Brunswick. Uh, Our ability to attract and retain newcomers will have a lot to do with the success and the prosperity uh, of our communities around this region uh, into the future. So it's a, the onus is on us and the onus is on them. And I think if we get this right, it's going to help our prosperity. If we get it wrong, you know, we're in for 20 years of a pretty uh, rough slog, I think. The other thing that I'd like to mention, and you mentioned Manitoba, that's a really interesting example, David, because they were uh, more like us than um, than most other parts of the country. They set out on a, a population growth strategy well before Atlantic Canada. They were very successful in, in growing their population over the last uh, almost two decades, uh, particularly in the Winnipeg area. Um, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think they're were, they were bringing in almost 20,000 people a year today um, from uh, other parts of the world. Uh, they'd be close to that number. But the, their strategy was a little bit different. And um, I think it's worth thinking about. They, they focused a lot of their attention on the Filipino uh, community. And uh, they created a critical mass in that community and it meant that, you know, if you're a Filipino going into Winnipeg, you're going into the second largest Filipino population outside of the Philippines. And so it's kind of just like home. <laughs> and I, I think the retention has really been impacted to some extent by the fact that they focused on on, on that uh, community. Obviously, they have people from all, all over the world as well. But I think as a strategy for communities or for provinces, the idea to focus on, you know, um, uh, getting critical mass for whoever you're trying to attract uh, creates uh, stickiness uh, for those people coming into the community. And um, I, I'd like to—I always reference the Lebanese community in Halifax, who's been uh, that community has been disproportionately important uh, to our city. Uh, they're the primary drivers of development in our, in our region. They create a lot of wealth and uh, employment, and uh, they, you know, they've they've really created a, their 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 community in such a way as that they they make it easier, and they actually reach out for other people living in Lebanon who want to immigrate to Canada to come to Halifax and have the support mechanisms of their community in place that makes it a lot easier for them to stay. 
So your memory's pretty good. I looked at the numbers for 2019 here, and across Manitoba, it was about 19,000 in 2019. Of course, the numbers dropped in 2020. They dropped across the country. but So that's about right, just under 20,000. Um, I think that's right. There's only one caveat with that, and that is when you take a, a community-centric approach, in other words, you're going to bring in hundreds or thousands from one jurisdiction, you risk that community becoming sort of insular by itself. And so in some of our largest uh, communities in Canada, some of the largest urban centers, you get a little bit of this, um, uh, you know, uh, cloistering in, in specific ethnic communities. So it's a combination for me of both. You want to have a strong ethnic community, and we've, we're seeing a number of them arising around the region, but you also want to make sure they're integrating well into the wider community. Uh, there's some, you know, cases, for example, in Vancouver of people that don't even learn English. Uh, and you may be able to get away with that in a very large urban center like Vancouver, but you're not going to get you're not going to find meaningful employment in Moncton, New Brunswick, if you don't speak English or French, as an example. So I think that's one of the the only consideration with trying to cluster is making sure you're still looking at a, a, a broader strategy of integration into the wider community. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not suggesting a single community, but uh, but to build communities where there's critical mass. So they, they, they for instance, can have their own uh, churches. Like if you're a Muslim, for instance, you need to have a mosque uh, to be able to practice your religion. And you can't do that unless you have a significant enough number of other Muslims living in the community to support that kind of activity. That's that's really what he's referring to. But, yes. you know, there's there's lots of good examples of... Uh, of uh, Smaller communities doing exactly this sort of thing. Um, I think the uh, I might have the name of the company wrong, but I think it's Red Star Fisheries and Tignish uh, PEI, which is pretty small, um, have uh, uh, you know gone after a certain cluster of uh, of immigrants and uh, and what they've one of the th- one of the outcomes which is really interesting is that church attendance is up in t- Tignish. <laughs> because uh, the, the 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 newcomers are Christian and and they attend church a lot more than uh, apparently uh, native born islanders do. So it's really even in small communities you can see the benefit of uh, that strategy. No, but even minor hockey, right? So so even things like that. If you're running out of young students or young people to to fill to to take part to take part in these minor sports. Uh, newcomers again, they're they're coming. Many of them have young families, and they they help uh, they help boost the numbers for some of these programs, like minor hockey or minor so- minor soccer in particular is really taking off. Uh, I think for for obvious reasons. Well, the other you know the other thing that's interesting, if you look at PEI as we've discussed before, their success on the immigration side has lowered their uh, median age uh, because uh, when they come in, of course, they bring in. Uh, younger families, and they they bring down the average age uh, uh, of the people living there, which is obviously good for all kinds of uh, activities. Uh, you know, minor sports being one of them, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I but I think Don, and you know, I've talked about this before. I think the number one tool for retention is ensuring the folks coming in have a good economic opportunity, one that's aligned with their skills and interests. So if you're if they're an entrepreneur, that they settle into a business that makes sense for them. Uh, if they're a tradesperson, that they're working in a trade, uh, you know, the alignment between uh, the economic activity or the, or the workforce activity of the immigrant is incredibly important to retention. It's not the only thing, even if they have a great job, if they're not happy here, if their family's not happy, they will leave. 
But I, I am very convinced that a lot of newcomers have come to this region in the past without a good economic opportunity. And that's been one of the main reasons why they leave. Uh, if you look at some of the program, the Stats Canada uh, provided quite a bit of data on immigrant uh, retention by activity. And caregivers, for example, in Nova Scotia, there's a 90% retention rate. You know, so these people are coming in, they're coming into a role that they're comfortable with, and they have very, very high retention. If you look at refugees, there's a very high retention as well, but that's probably for other reasons, right? Because of the support they're receiving. Uh, if you look at immigrants sponsored by family, the retention rate in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia is over 85%. So that's an incredibly important thing because what that says is once the, the immigrant is, is, uh, puts down roots here and wants to bring other members of their family, whether it's brothers or cousins or, or parents or whatever, family class immigrants, uh, the retention rates are, are really, really high. So I think I, I would just want to reiterate what we've been saying all along is that, you know, we need to make sure as much as possible the folks that are coming into this region have an economic opportunity that's matched to their skills and interests. And if we can do that, I think we have a better chance at long-term retention. And I love the example that Jim Irving gave us uh, last week about the Brazilian foresters that are coming into Chipman, New Brunswick, freezing themselves in the wintertime, but, you know, coming in for jobs that are paying $55,000, $60,000 a year. Uh, and, uh, you know, so if we can attract those kinds of trade uh, skills, you know, to uh, jobs in the logging industry, as, as an example, it shows that we can be success successful at any level of, of attracting people to this region, as long as, as you mentioned, matching their skills to the job opportunity and and the Atlantic Pilot Program, I think, has been a great uh, program for that purposes because people are coming in with a job that is aligned to their skill set. So, uh, you know, we, I think we made some great progress over the last little while. The question that I have is, uh, are we going to get our fair share going forward uh, uh, for some of those programs? Because the needs uh, can continue to grow. As Jim uh, mentioned, he's looking for 8,000 people over the next three years for Atlantic Canada. And there, there are not 8,000 people here to fill those jobs right now. He, he, he you know, clearly said that we have to find ways of attracting people from elsewhere to fill those jobs. Yeah. So what I've said all along is, is the national numbers need to be set provincially and rolled up. And I think historically, the, the federal government has basically said, look, we're going to need 250,000 or 300 or 350,000. Uh, and I think in, the, in the, the better approach would be to go the other way and say, well, how many do you need New Brunswick? How many do you need Nova Scotia? How many do you need Prince Edward Island? And then roll it up. And then you're looking at more like 450,000, but you have a better indication of the number we need nationally uh, if we're going to have enough workers to meet workforce demand. Well, that's right. I, I, I've said all along that, uh, you know, we need to establish our own targets uh, down here. Um, uh, Newfoundland's a good example. They're, the targets that they have are inadequate to uh, maintain their workforce. Uh, they need to triple the number that they, they need to bring in. But, you know, if they're restricted by the federal government, that's going to be a real challenge. And so we've got to get away uh, around that. Yep. So, Don, you had a you, you had a good conversation this week with the head of the Immigrant Services Association of Nova Scotia. Yeah, and, and one of the things that we're trying to do, as you know, is to uh, bring uh, examples of uh, good practices um, to the discussion, so that other 
other provinces, other groups, other communities can uh, learn by that success and replicate that success. Uh, the reason that uh, we thought that it would be good to talk to Jennifer Watts, the CEO of the Immigration uh, Services Association of Nova Scotia, is that uh, they've done a great job of uh, bringing all the services needed to support immigrants um, into one organization as a one-stop operation. And, uh, you know, they start with handling inquiries from people who are interested in coming to Nova Scotia and helping them go through the process of applying and making sure that they have what they need. Um, obviously, they spend a lot of time on settlement, making sure people are in the right living accommodations, uh, making sure that they have, you know, all the all their licensing done, uh, making sure the kids get into school, uh, all those things that help facilitate the, you know, the transition to a new, a new, new country, obviously. Uh, and then they get into a lot of uh, preparing people for the workforce training, uh, not just language, but, you know, the customs and, and habits that, uh, you know, they should expect in the workplace. Uh, they also, they also work with uh, employers to help uh, the transition period. Uh, for an example, uh, as the interview will show, um, they they look at language specifically for the type the type of job that people are going to take to make sure that they have the language associated with the business, uh, so they get to that degree of uh, support. So uh, they've been around for a while. They were uh, really the result of an amalgamation of a couple of organizations that were largely based in Halifax, um, uh, but most of their real progress has been over the last ten years, uh, where they've really ramped up the services. Um, and have really, I think, helped to, to uh, increase the retention numbers. And I think it's a really good example for the other provinces who really don't have the same same sort of infrastructure in place uh, to support um, uh, newcomers to our country. So uh, the, in the interview with uh, Jennifer, I think, is quite insightful in terms of the things that have to be in place uh, to uh, support uh, retention, and and it's not just the it's not just the public sector's responsibility. As we as we talked to Jim last week, it, it, you know, individual companies are doing uh, things as well. Uh, the fact that a, a company like JDI have their own settlement services in their company, uh, I think, speaks volumes about the effort that is needed to uh, integrate people and make sure that, that, that they stay. So uh, I think the conversation with Jennifer will be uh, worth, worth listening to. I'm looking forward to it. So here's our interview with uh, Jennifer Watts, the CEO of the Immigrant Services Association of Nova Scotia. Have a listen. I'm very pleased to be joined with Jennifer uh, Watts, who's the CEO of the Immigrant Services Association of Nova Scotia, known as ISENS for short. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thank you, Don. Happy to be here. So you haven't been in the job all that long, I guess a, a little bit more than three years. You took over from Jerry Mills, who is no relation to me. That, that, uh, that, that, those were big shoes to fill, obviously. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your experience coming into a, a new organization, because previously you were a, a two-term counselor with the Halifax Regional Municipality. Right. It was uh, it was fascinating to be able to make this move from kind of public elected life into working for a nonprofit. 
Uh, I've long admired Eisen's work in the community, and it has a very long and rich history here. We, last year, we celebrated our 40th anniversary. So it was an amazing dive into uh, uh, getting a, an incredible understanding of the work and expertise of the organization, but also the vision for newcomers and the support for our province in terms of really moving uh, the immigration agenda forward. So it's been, uh, it's been a fascinating and uh, very intense experience. Well, it sounds like it. Um, I want to start a little bit by asking about the history of ISANS. Uh, it's my understanding that it started uh, with an amalgamation of two Halifax-based immigration agencies. Is that right? Yeah, so ISANS, as I said, uh, has about a 40-year history. And in 2009, there was the merger of uh, MISA, which was a settlement agency, and HILC, which was a language learning center. And so obviously they had had strong relationships beforehand and it only made sense in terms of the clients that they were working with. And I think the real commitment to providing a holistic delivery of services for people uh, that they came together uh, under this merger and formed uh, ISIN. So um, I think it's been a very positive way of kind of putting many resources under one roof with one staff team that kind of can case manage people and really have an effective uh, impact on supporting them on their on their settlement here in Nova Scotia. And, and ISIS is really unique in the Atlantic region, is it not, in terms of all the sort of services that it provides under one roof? Well, there's actually other agencies across the Atlantic uh, Atlantic provinces that do offer many services. Uh, I would say that ISENS is one of the largest, is the largest in the Atlantic Canada and is in fact one of the largest nationally. There are not many organizations across the country that again would offer the full suite of services that we do. So, you know, we help people settle, we help people find employment, we help them learn English, we help them to develop business and become entrepreneurs, we help them to connect into the community, and we also work with employers. And so that kind of full service delivery is uh, somewhat unique in terms of, uh, of, uh, of even the Canadian uh, kind of national scene. Yeah, so it's a one-stop shop, basically. And um, as I understand it as well, is that people actually contact you in advance uh, to uh, learn how to become uh, a resident of the province. Absolutely. So um, interestingly, ISENS has been a pioneer in Canada with some other agencies in uh, offering uh, programs online and uh, doing virtual delivery. And this was way before, you know, COVID kind of hit the scene, but also is um, pioneered the, the delivery of pre-arrival services. So our major federal funder, IRCC, had uh, expressed interest in looking at helping people uh, who were on the pathway to coming to Canada, so already had been approved at some uh, level by the Canadian government to come, that they would qualify to access programs while they were still in their own country uh, to help them arrive better prepared. And so we have, we actually out of Nova Scotia run one of the services across Canada. So it's been uh, fantastic in terms of the looking at the uh, impact of people who have had that experience before arriving and their attachment to the labor market once they once they come, a very high success rate. So our staff would do things like, you know, um, 
uh, employment counseling, what it's like to work in Canada, the type of, you know, connections they want to make, some of the soft skill stuff in terms of, you know, what the Canadian workplace culture is like, helping people and also what it's like to moving into the community. So we have partners, so we handle the Atlantic region, but we also have partners in Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and BC that also deliver that program in their own provincial context. So it's been a really fascinating journey again to support that. And as a result of that, we've been actually uh, running two new pilots, one specifically working with refugees who are still uh, maybe in refugee camps and coming to Canada and helping them prepare, and also generally for youth, the very targeted youth program pre-arrival. So it's, it's been exciting. You know, that's a, that's a big mandate, uh, and, I, and it's obviously evolved over time. Um, you have a fairly uh, big staff complement, don't mm-hmm. you? Yes. So we have about uh, 300 persons, uh, people that work with us right now. Um, a lot of that is uh, as uh, uh, because of our language uh, service delivery. So we offer many different classes and many different, uh, you know, across the continuum of need. And we also have a strong employment team as well. And, uh, you know, just, you know, providing the number of services. The year before last in our last fiscal, we had 10,000 people uh, come through our doors looking for services. So there's a fairly significant number of people that use our services and uh, and the variety, again, of the programming. And I would say, John, you know, one of the things that we do do, which is really important, is that we offer services across the continuum. For So, for example, in language, some of our clients arrive that have never had, are illiterate in their own language, have never been in a formal school setting, may not know how to actually even hold a pencil. And so our staff work with them to help them begin their journey to learning English, you know, and sitting in a classroom and understanding that. To people on the other side of the continuum that speak multiple languages, they're going for a very key interview in the next couple of days. They just need to kind of polish some language specific to their area. And that's who we work with. And then we offer everything else in between. So a series of programs have been very carefully tailored to meet the wide continuum of needs that we have. Uh, One of our successful programs is English in the Workplace, where we have uh, staff go out and work in the workplace with the newcomer and with their employer to help really work on those soft communication skills, understanding a bit about the cultural context of the workplace, but also adapt around some language skills as well. So it's been very exciting to see, you know, through this long history, how ICE and staff have really looked at what are the needs of the clients and adapted the program to respond to those needs. I know from my own experience as an employer that, um, Often we would get really good resumes from immigrants or newcomers looking for jobs, and we would interview them. Uh, The problem that we seem to run into on a regular basis is that language skills just weren't enough for the jobs that we had because we had jobs that interfaced with clients and that sort of thing. And I I think that it's a challenge, obviously, to get people to a level that you know, they can work with client-facing situations. Uh, do you have any any programming for language that is like a kind of a higher level? Like Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We, we do a lot of language programming uh, to help people. Uh, so in, in a variety of ways, one is that we have, as I mentioned, English in the workplace, but we also have a uh, several uh, language programs for kind of the more advanced English speakers who really do need to kind of fine tune, especially some of the language in the, in the context. So understanding what would be appropriate uh, uh, connections and way to be able to express yourself. There may be uh, different classes in, in, in a variety of ways. So our staff has certainly worked very, very hard at that kind of uh, uh, work. We also know that we prepare, for example, nurses that need a high level of, uh, of English language. So we, we have developed specific programs tailored to assisting people who have perhaps have nursing degrees in their own country. Uh, be able to meet the standardized tests that they have to pass here in order to be able to move into a nursing profession here. Um, one of the areas that we've worked a lot on, and again, you know, I've actually led in Canada on this, has been international qualification recognition. Uh, so recognizing the number of people who come here, we have two things. We work at two levels. We work with a multi-stakeholder working group of which there are 13 different professional bodies and regulators that we work with right now. So architects, nurses, dietitians, social workers, um, medical doctors, lawyers, and work with those professional bodies, with people who are doing the training to look at what are the barriers or uh, things that may be preventing people who have those qualifications in their own country from actually working here in Canada. And how can we make systemic change, or particularly in Nova Scotia, systemic change to make it easier that they can enter into the, uh, the workforce here. We also work with individuals who do have those qualifications that need very specific, you know, kind of uh, pathways being built. This is what the next step you need to do. This is, you know, we provide people, for example, international medical graduates, preparing them for their exams, you know, what it's like to go through a test, what, you know, you'll be asked to do, uh, helping people to, uh, you know, provide um find the type of uh, um, work of their tradesperson, you know, the type of equipment or qualifications they may need to get around, for example, WIMIS or fire safety. So there's a variety of things we've also tailored for those individuals. So we have a very large commitment to really working on that international qualification recognition and assisting in that and moving forward for people. Well, obviously, that's a big factor in retention. If, you, yeah, if people can work in their field, uh, they're more likely to stay. Uh, yeah. So very important. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your sources of funding. Mm -hmm. So we receive predominantly funding from our uh, from government sources. So certainly a huge chunk from uh, IRCC, um, Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, but also from other departments, uh, COA, um, you know, uh, Service Canada. Uh, and we also receive funding from the provincial government uh, through, again, a variety of sources, the um, immigration and population growth and also labor and advanced education. And then we receive also support from some foundations and from some other uh, organizations from time to time that also support our work. Funding is a issue for us. We're looking to diversify our funding because we, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's something that, you know, one of the things that we struggle with is that government funding is tied to eligibility. And often we're working with people who may not have permanent, uh, you know, PR status, uh, permanent resident status. And so therefore we may not be able to offer them a program. So we see need, particularly, uh, this is really important right now as we see this growing question across Canada, particularly coming out of COVID, 
of the impact of temporary foreign workers, international students, people who have been here not with uh, PR status, but have made significant, you know, contributions to our economy, have really been essential workers, front workers, frontline workers for us. And how do we assist them on their pathway to permanent residency? Um, we're, the federal government is certainly very interested in that, but there is a huge question about eligibility. So whenever we're able to have other sources of funding, it able, enables us to expand that opportunity uh, for more clients. Let's talk a little bit about the numbers. Um, the, the province obviously has some goals in terms of the number of immigrants attracted to the province over the next five years. Uh, can you articulate kind of what the the objectives might be in terms of immigrant attraction? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, uh, there was certainly some indication was given back, if you remember the One Nova Scotia report about seeing immigration as being uh, very important. And in fact, uh, you know, the, the goal was surpassed. The target, I believe, in 2019 was 7,000, and they surpassed that about, by about 7,500. Uh, it was last year was again on its way to kind of a record breaking year. And then, of course, the situation with COVID happened and uh, things slowed down dramatically. But we see both at the federal and provincial levels a huge commitment on uh, on uh, understanding the importance of having people come, of having immigrants come to uh, to respond to uh, the economic development and, and imperative that's happening right now in, in our both in our country, but also particularly in our province. And I'd like to say that, you know, although the economic imperative is there and it's, you know, tied to, you know, uh, our demographics and, and uh, the, the surge and the opportunity in terms of the work that's here, uh, immigrants bring so much more than just their labor market attachment. And I think that's one of the uh, challenges that we continue to face is that um, people come to work here, but they also come as many of us did. I mean, uh, those of us who threw out our own background in history, our families came as immigrants. They came to settle here. They came for opportunity. They came to contribute. And they have incredible things to offer us just beyond an attachment to the labor market. And I think that's one of the things that's really important for all of us to grasp is that if we're going to be about supporting retention and having people stay here, uh, because there's a huge investment. We all make a huge investment when we bring someone here and settle them and go through training and everything. If people leave and go to other parts of Canada, it's a loss. I mean, it's not necessarily a loss to our whole Canadian identity, but it's a loss to our region. And so we really need to pay very close attention to the fact this is not just about labor market, you know, need or response or attachment. It's about people developing a sense that I belong here. I have a contribution. I see my family, you know, settling here. We're welcomed. This is the place that I want to be. And there's a whole series of factors that can support that. But it's critically important to, I think, for all of us to understand that and to be ready and open to change ourselves, both at our workplaces, but in our communities and our schools and our, you know, whatever activities that that we engage with, both at uh, municipal and provincial levels. Well, you've heard me say this. I mean, Many Canadians are very friendly, but not necessarily welcoming to others, no matter where they come from. And uh, we need to get better at that uh, for certain. Um, where Where is the largest percentage of immigrants coming from right now to Nova Scotia? What, what groups? Well, it fluctuates somewhat, but I would say that, uh, and I don't have the most recent figures, but certainly um, 
um, people coming from China, the Philippines, uh, Nigeria. It seems to me there's another group in there, but the, you know, there, so it kind of varies. It goes up from year to year, but the, those would be some of the key uh, key communities that uh, that we would be seeing large number of immigrants settling. And and how important is what I would call critical mass of these groups living in communities to support retention of these people? So that varies. Uh, you know, people come here sometimes uh, because, uh, um, well, people come, they see opportunity. And they may come because they already have family members here. They may come because they were a student and then have decided to settle here. Um, so I think for some communities, it is very critically important that people have that sense of a larger community uh, that reflects kind of their uh, cultural background, their religious background, so that they have the kind of resources that can support uh, uh, them and their families. Other people come because they want something completely different. They're leaving and they look to Canada as a new opportunity, a new place to settle. So it may not be so important to have those community connections and ties. But I would say one of the things I think that is happening more in our own community is a greater diversity, a greater openness to um, uh, welcoming people. We see more diversification of businesses. I mean, it was wonderful to read about the story last week about the uh, Syrian cheesemaker setting up, you know, uh, in, in the community. I've heard another example of a, uh, someone setting up a corner store the past couple of weeks. So, you know, people being able to have a sense of their um, ability to connect and have a sense of home, but also the things that are really important to them. And, and, and certainly food is critically important. Yeah. <laughs> As we all know, you know, when we, when we have our favorite food. And so being able to buy things that reflect your own community and to pass that on to your children, right? You know, I think it's that kind of touch base back with home and, and here. And so anything that we can do to support those entrepreneurs and small business is really important. And one of the things we can do as buyers, you like going to those stores and supporting them. It's not just kind of a one community, you know, kind of focus. It, it, it invites us all to kind of engage in, in that and, uh, and participate. What are the biggest challenges immigrants face coming to a province like Nova Scotia? So certainly um, learning um, English for people who would be coming for the first time, that would be a, a, a challenge of uh, needing to make sure that they are able to engage in classes and, and to have the opportunity to learn. Um, finding employment, uh, particularly if they're not able to work in their own field immediately. Uh, finding an appropriate place to work and then be able to see a pathway to move forward on. Um, the trauma in some cases, people, you know, leaving your home, even if you want to come, even if this is an active choice in your own part, it's still traumatic, right? It's still a huge shift of leaving everything that you've known to come to a new place and settle. But for some people, that was not a choice. For some people, they were forced to leave, you know, particularly thinking of uh, refugees that have come. So sometimes there's a lot of trauma that is very hard to kind of connect. And even, as I said, for people who've made that choice to come, you know, anytime you go through that, it can be wonderful at the beginning. Then often there's a honeymoon at the beginning. This is fantastic. And then reality kind of sinks in. And then you kind of, kind of come out of it on the other side. 
um, you know, having lived overseas, you know, twice in my own life for, for, you know, extensive periods of time, there's, there's the ups and downs that, that happen. And I think your engagement with the community and the support that you receive from other people around you is really critical. So for us who have lived here, uh, and, uh, and, you know, engaging with newcomers is really important. And, and that kind of personal checking in, uh, the establishing kind of the relationships, the, uh, you know, ability to for them to see beyond just either their job or their studies, but actually to see this as a place where, wow, this is, you know, I, I'm actually making some, you know, developing friendships or developing relationships and seeing this as a place where people do care and are interested in me. Yeah. I'm, I'm suspecting that housing is a big challenge at the moment, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, we don't have enough housing given that population. I think mm-hmm. Halifax grew 10,000 people in the last year or so. Uh, you know, we have limited uh, vacancy in apartments and uh, bidding wars for houses. It's mm-hmm. really uh, different than it was 10 years ago, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's a very unusual year too for us. So yeah. And, and the housing goes across a, across a continuum. I think that's what's important. In some cases, you know, um, you know, very affordable housing is critical for a certain uh, a number, particularly when we're thinking about refugees coming in. But there's also people coming in who are looking for, you know, kind of the place in the middle of that continuum, and people looking for even driving higher end, you know, uh, housing needs. So it's, uh, I think it's important that um, generally housing across a wide continuum is, is, is of course, an interest. It was an interesting study done uh, earlier um, in the year, last year, by um, um, Athra Akbari from SMU that looked about why people stay and why people leave. And, you know, some of the, the, you know, the sense of belonging came up quite clearly for that, but also the sense about, um, and we do know that the sense about how people settle here well with their families. So I think generally we have understood for a long period of time that uh, sometimes, you know, what may be the principal applicant, whoever that may be in the family unit, may settle well. But the, if they bring a spouse and if they have children, how are they settling? And I think that's kind of ties back into this question, you know, the larger community support. But often one of the those spouses, whether it's the, um, the man or the woman, may be at home with the children and helping them settle. And what is their opportunity and how are they developing their language skills and finding employment and, and connecting into the community? So we've worked for a long time, as well as many other settlement partners we work with in the province, about that sense of, of settling the family and engaging with them and helping them feel settled. Because that's going to be if no one is happy at home and some other place looks like more attractive, it's very hard, you know, for people to 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 stay uh, in a place where it may look more attractive for the whole family to be in another place. So again, it's all of that integration in our schools, uh, in our communities, uh, supporting, uh, you know, people who maybe have had to stay home for a couple of years, supporting children coming back into the workforce. So there's been a couple of really good programs we've been able to run here, um, one particularly for racially visible minority women, uh, not making the assumption that women are always the ones at home, but in terms of really supporting them and understanding their uh, professional, what their professions have been and how they can enter into the market uh, place uh, that reflects their training and background, which uh, has been a really important support program. 
there are different ways that immigrants can come to the province. Obviously, there's the provincial nominee program, the Atlantic Immigrant uh, Pilot po- Program, which has been, I think, pretty successful from everybody's um, feedback. The family reunification program, I guess, and also the refugee stream. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see do you see um, changes in, in how people are coming uh, to the province over the last couple of years? Uh, is there one that looks kind of better for us overall? So certainly the um, the Atlantic Immigration Program has been a really a real boost, and that's very much employer driven. So the employer is identifying their need; they're becoming a designated employer. They're searching out a candidate, and then that person is kind of matched. So that person is coming very specifically to a job with an employer. And you know, our role as the settlement agency is to support the employer and the uh, the um, person coming on their settlement plan, connecting them, support them. And again, that whole family unit, helping them to try and understand who are you coming with? How can we really settle that, you know, your whole kind of uh, uh, family together at one time? Um, the, the other thing, though, that the province here has been very good at doing is targeting uh, programs specific through the provincial nominee program to labor market needs. So identifying very critically, this is a need. We're going to open up an opportunity window have people come in. So it's been been great because that really identifies for people there are jobs here. If you're coming, there's a very high likelihood that you're going to get a job and really, you know, kind of ties that in. So that has been a very, I think, strategic um, um, uh, strategy or or a key strategy in the part of the provincial government of really uh, responding to that. Um, I think, you know, we also do a lot of work at ISENS, for example, around our bridge to work programs and really helping people enter into a training program so that if they may have had previous experience in doing that work, but the bridge to work really helps them get ready to enter into specific fields. So, for example, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we uh, it was announced that we are able to um, uh, offer a program for uh, personal care workers and for construction workers, and it is very much a bridging program. So those are very key. We work a lot with employers in, in understanding what are their labor needs. And then when we see uh, folks coming in, being able to get them into this, these bridging programs that either, depending you know on their background, either helps with them upgrade on their English around very uh, um, job-specific language, get some first aid certification, WMIS, you know, a whole series of activities, some other training. Uh, we've run an interesting program with the uh, trucker se- uh, Trucking Sector Council of, uh, of um, uh, Nova Scotia on a uh, professional driver's course. So helping prepare because there's a huge uh, need for professional drivers uh, and so that program helps prepare people to actually go to the actual course so they can pass that course, get their certification to become a professional driver. And there's a job waiting for them, right? You know, there's a job waiting for them. So this has been very successful. I think we've had three cohorts now, people going through this training, often people who've driven um, uh, professionally in other countries, but need to get their kind of certification, understand some of the uh, language needs. I mean, it's, there's technical things and bills of lading and everything else that need to be kind of done. So, you know, really working on that so that they can get into that course, get that certification and move on. So again, um 
it, it's really uh, it's a fascinating and exciting area to be working with employers and, and looking at what those opportunities are. So there are two kind of big issues that I just wanted to get your feedback on. One is obviously the retention rates that we currently have and kind of where we are going from and to. And the second one uh, is also important, and it's the distribution dispersion, I guess, of immigrants around the provinces. As I understand, about 80% of immigrants are ending up in Halifax, which doesn't leave a big group for the rest of the province. So let's start with uh, retention. Where are we right now, Jennifer? So um, retention um, after one year sits just above 70%. And so that is um, one of the highest in the Atlantic region. But it would be, you know, a fair bit lower than, for example, other uh, provinces, for example, Ontario uh, and B.C. Um, after five years, so I'm just looking for my notes here, Don. Um, yeah, it kind of drops, right? The yeah, it does drop. And then, and then after 10 years, I think it goes down to 53%. Yeah. So what would, what would be the goal? What would be the... The goal would be to, you know, hit that national average, which I think sits at about 86 or 89 percent, you know. After, uh, after five I, years? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, the goal is, well, well, I'm not saying it's a provincial goal. I'm just saying, generally speaking, I think the goal will always be to really have people settle here and stay here over the longer term. So although I think it's positive to see the high number of 70% for the Atlantic region, which is for Nova Scotia, because in the Atlantic region, that is a, a high number. But it's those other years out, after five years, after 10 years, which then becomes really important to measure. And again, I think a lot of that, you know, has, I, I think, a sense around this, this um, opportunity for a sense of belonging. But it's also, I think, reflected on things like wages. I mean, if people see that I could earn more in another part of Canada, um, you know, it's hard to argue, even with our own children, <laughs> you know, here to stay, you know, in, in a community when they see, you know, perhaps better wages in other parts of, of Canada. Um, and so, you know, we have to work, I think, harder in making it, uh, if the reality here is, is, is you know, um, uh, that is the economic situation, although I would make a pitch that, you know, competitive wages will go a huge, you know, I think a huge way to retaining people here in the, in the community. But there's also other things that we really need to work hard on. And we we don't have the advantages that perhaps Ontario and BC has. So we need to work harder on that welcoming community, that connection. People generally love it here. The sense of space, the sense of the connection to the natural beauty, the sense of the connection to the calmness. And now, you know, really, you know, I mean, with the COVID numbers, I mean, right now we're in a situation where we have a very safe community. Hopefully that will last. You know, the ability to be able to say that, you know, we 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 have this situation in, in our own community where we've been able to respond to this situation and, and still, you know, be able to engage in the way we are right now in our communities. So I think there's a numerous things that kind of look very attractive for people in terms of, of, of Nova Scotia. But it's the long-term retention, and I think it's really critical that people see their future here in terms of their career, but also in terms of, of they belong here. This is my home, and and uh, and I want to stay here. 
Um, I had an interesting discussion the other day with a group um, that was a women's group on International Women's Day, and we were talking about, you know, what are the changes that need to happen? And I was referring to a report that came out about how to encourage newcomer girls and women to be engaged in recreation programs. And it kind of struck one of the people in the group when they were saying, you know, I row, like I, I row all the time. And, and it's all women that I row with. Why? Because one of the things about the recreation programs is sometimes it's hard for women that maybe don't come from an experience of professional, of, of, of organized sports or you know, engagement to invite women in in a women-only situation to learn, for example, a new sport. And so kind of the light bulb went on with her. This is something that we could actually do. We could offer in a safe space a learn-to-row for newcomer women that would invite them into this to explore and to see what the joy we have of being out on the Northwest Arm on an evening having a lovely row together and enjoying that. And it was just – it was such, you know – you know, a small but very profound moment of people understanding how something that I enjoy and I love to do, how can I open that door up and invite other people in to participate in that in a way that's mindful of their background and how to engage with them. And there's a lot of learning. It's not just about, you know, us giving. We also then receive, right? Receive a lot in terms of our own sense of community and connection. Let's talk about the second issue, because obviously retention is going to be the, the key measure going forward uh, for not just Nova Scotia, but the region overall. Um, the other issue is that the six kind of largest urban areas in Atlantic Canada get 80% of the immigrants coming in. So we have a labor issue all throughout Atlantic Canada. How do we get communities uh, you know, in a position that are smaller to attract immigrants to those communities? Mm -hmm. So I think there's been some fascinating uh, work actually done. And we see in some cases, um, there's a very interesting project uh, support happening in the Picto area uh, in terms of an economic mobility uh, project. And um, one of the new initiatives of the federal government is to actually look at uh, refugees who have qualifications, you know, professional backgrounds, but who are refugees come in under uh, an economic stream that it kind of opens up to them because they may not have all of their papers or there may be some difficulties with uh, them fitting into the regular stream of approaching uh, Canada. And so it's been very interesting to see the work that's been done, uh, you know, in Picto of really trying to support and bring in people to one employer. Uh, They've actually recruited in a particular area in Africa. I believe it's in in one of the refugee areas in Kenya, uh, bringing people who uh, from a nursing background to come and work. And then building support around that, the community, where's the housing going to be? How are people going to get back and forth to work? What are the kind of support? Do they need to, you know, have some improvement in English? How can we support that? So very much a community kind of uh, effort, because in many ways, the issues that uh, may be facing immigrants are facing many folks who have born and lived here for many times. Can I get a job? How do I get around without a car? You know, can I earn a wage that will support me in being able to, uh, you know, uh, connect, you know, around that? So, um, yeah, so I think there's, there's, there's some issues as well. I think there's growing awareness and interest on the part of many municipalities outside of, you know, HRM or 
uh, you know, some even some of the larger town centers about really looking at supporting uh, immigrants. And um, again, it's that community approach, the integration of the family if the family comes and uh, and settling. You know, there are other good examples uh, of communities. Um, uh, one that comes to mind is Tignition PEI. I don't know if you've heard of this example. I think the name of the company is Red Star Fisheries, who've uh, uh, been very ses- successful creating a, a community of immigrants in that smaller community. And then um, the Irvings uh, have created a community up in Chipman, which is another very small rural area. But one of the things that I've been advocating for is that uh, any any community of size, um, let's say 5,000 or more, they need to have a population growth strategy because they face the same issues, the same labor force issues as everybody else. And uh, it's something that you have to work on. You just can't let it happen organically. You have to you know, plan for it. Uh, so I think that that's something that's really important for communities to think about. We're almost out of time. I just uh, I I want to turn to a final subject because I think that the private sector has been a little bit missing in action when it comes to immigration. Not entirely, but uh, I think the the role of um, the private sector is important at two levels. First of all, in terms of uh, supporting the need for population growth and immigration in general, uh, you know, being an advocate uh, in that regard, uh, but also in terms of uh, especially organizations of size, to think about um, their employee populations and start to figure out that they need to have more diversity represented in those populations. And I wonder if, are, are you working with any private sector companies uh, along those lines? Yeah, so we have, uh, through our uh, business team, uh, working with employers, so we off- offer workplace cultural programs, and um, and the, those can range a bit of on continuum, kind of a one-day kind of, you know, uh, glimpse into that. We can also do assessments with uh, with employers in terms of uh, what what uh, what's happening in your workplace, what changes, and as, you know, as you may begin to uh, integrate newcomers, also helping to do some uh, support work beyond that. So again, I mentioned the uh, English in the Workplace program is one example of a, of a tool that can really help employers. They engage with an employer, uh, with, a, with a newcomer. They maybe need to work on some communication things. So we have some work specifically. We also offer, you know, um, uh, professional practice opportunities. So particularly successful is one of our ones with the um, with engineering where uh, they, uh, people go and work for, I believe it's two or three months with a uh, firm to this, these are my skills, right? This is who I am as, a, as an engineer. They have uh, no obligation on the part of the employer and, they're, and they receive, uh, you know, a small subsidy from uh, through our funding to be able to experience that. So they get kind of a test run and they test, you know, the employer tests them. The, the uh, newcomer has a chance to test their experience, see where that maybe they need to uh, have some further work. But generally that has been an incredibly positive, you know, program and people have found very high employment rates coming out of that program. So we have numerous kind of programs where people can kind of um, uh, invite people in, get an experience in a supportive environment. Uh, But also we do that kind of harder work as well, which can be harder around the workplace culture, because again, it refers back to what I was talking about earlier. If this is going to work, we all need to understand that we all need to change. The newcomer needs to adapt and learn and change and work in the thing, but also 
the employer and the employees in that workplace also need to understand that they need to adapt and change, that, it, 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 that if this is really going to work and if people are really committed to this business, to this employment and to this, you know, to this, uh, uh, you know, opportunity that it's, it's, it's change on everyone's part. And, and that's, that can be hard, but it can also be wonderful. It also makes us more globally competitive, right? We become stronger when we have more diversity of thought, more new perspectives, more new energy, you know, it, it, it enables us to compete at a different level, which we're going to have to do. We, you know, there's no business really that's going to be super local anymore, you know, that we really need to be able to have that ability to understand where we need to be working a new opportunity. And even if it does get played on the local scene, we constantly need to be adapting. And so when people come with different ideas and experience, that makes the pie bigger. You know, it doesn't take away, it makes it bigger, deeper, fuller, more exciting for all of us to be able to benefit from. So I think it's um, it, it's looking at that. And, and the other benefit of that is that when people come and, and uh, find employment, they are also going out into our community and strengthening our volunteer sector. They're becoming the soccer, soccer coaches. They're becoming the people that, you know, support uh, making meals at the homeless shelter. We have many of our, of our uh, newcomers that come through our door volunteer in the community. And, and it, it just strengthens overall the social and cultural fabric of our community as well. So I think it's, um, there's so many benefits from engaging and changing ourselves. Um, and so I'm speaking as someone who's, who's been born here, that it's really important to, to understand that uh, role that we have ourselves as well. Well, Jennifer, it's been really good to talk to you. I think that uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you, because I knew that uh, Isens was really a model for the region, uh, the one-stop shop kind of uh, role that you play. It's so important to the future of the uh, of not just Nova Scotia, but the region for us to grow our population. I've been advocating for growth of population of 1% a year, which is what the country has done for the last 60 years. Uh, and um, that 1% growth will will add to our economic growth because that's the way it works. Uh, and I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that people who are listening might reach out to you, especially from the private sector, to see how they can, you know, get involved and, and help out. And uh, for any other organization, I'm sure you, in other provinces, I'm sure you'll be willing to share your secret sauce, will you not? <laughs> Absolutely. I got to say, Don, we work with some fabulous partners, some other settlement agencies that work in Nova Scotia, employers, uh, you know, nonprofit groups, you know, the community college. I mean, we just we work with many fantastic people. This is not an effort on our part. This is an effort on the part of many people. And we're very grateful to see that response. But we're also incredibly grateful for the newcomers that come through our doors that just come with a sense of wanting to make a contribution. And so, you know, that inspires us and uh, and helps us think about the ideas and we're, we're, we're inspired by, you know, kind of their new ways of looking at things and their desires as well. So it's, um, yeah, it's an amazing place to work. Well, thanks again, uh, Jennifer. It's, uh, it's been a great conversation and uh, uh, look forward to hearing more good things from your organization. Thanks, Don. You've been listening to the fourth episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. 
Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode, and you can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.